Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your truth and for the privileges you've given us to come and study. And we ask that your spirit will join us this morning, lighten our minds, draw us closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. The lesson title this week is Confinement in Caesarea. And if we look at Sabbath's lesson, let's read the second paragraph. It says, in all things, in all the hearings, Paul always claimed innocence, alleging that no evidence could be produced against him as the absence of witnesses demonstrated. In fact, the whole narrative is intended to show that Paul had done nothing worthy of arrest and that he could be released had he not appealed to Caesar. These hearings, though, did offer him the opportunity to witness about Jesus and the great hope found in the promise of the resurrection. Was Paul arrested because he did wrong? Then why was Paul arrested if he had done no wrong? Because the people didn't like what he was saying anyway. The people didn't like what he was saying? Well, they took him into protective custody. Never mind. So who didn't like it? Was it the the, it the, the Jews, great the leaders, church leadership? Okay, and why didn't they like it? What didn't they like? If he was doing no wrong, if it wasn't wrong, what what, what was it they didn't like? They claimed that Christ had died and was not resurrected. What what had the entire history of Judaism been teaching people? They were looking forward for, to the, and so he was teaching them something that they themselves proclaimed was supposed to happen. Why didn't they like it? Why didn't they go, this is what we've been waiting for. They didn't accept Christ as the Messiah. Right. And, and so they didn't accept him. Why? Okay. And, and, and this, and this connected. Why didn't they accept him? And, and why didn't they like Paul claiming this was the fulfillment of everything they've been teaching? They didn't like him because he didn't come and they expected him as a king. Okay. I, I'm, I'm with you. We're going to uh, take that theme. And what consequence? Let me put it this way then. What consequence? Change. Yes, particularly, I'm trying to get for them what's the consequence if Paul's right. They're wrong. And what's the consequence for them? Loss of power. Loss of power. They would lose their power. They would lose their authority. They would lose their esteem. They would lose, in their own minds anyway, they would feel they'd lose their reputation. They would be embarrassed. We haven't understood it. Some fisherman... Some uneducated, non-seminary trained, non-theologically wise and and, and so forth, plain old people somehow were able to discover truth before us? Don't you remember the discussion with the blind man who was was healed? And And they were having the conversation, how did this happen? And they ridiculed him because he wasn't a seminary trained. And so yes, they would lose their power. They, they were feared that people would no longer respect them. People no longer looked to them for the answers. And so Paul was teaching a message that threatened the social order that they were comfortable with, that kept them in a position of esteem and power. What's your assessment of how Paul was treated? Do you think the way Paul was treated, a message of, of truth that threatened social order, can we say that's fair? But that was not criminal. It just upset their comfort zone, particularly, and their sense of authority and their position of power. Do you think that something like that could happen in our society? It sounds very familiar. Do you remember Martin Luther King Jr.? Is his message a message that was true or false? And how was he treated by society in large? Well, ultimately, he was assassinated, wasn't he? Yeah. 
What do you think would happen in the Middle East today if you went to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Dubai, and you began, pull out your Bible and began preaching Christ to try to convert Muslims to Christ? What do you think would happen? Do you think you'd be treated well? Do you think people would appreciate your concern and love for them? Would you be arrested? Perhaps, depending on which country, you could be executed. Minimally, you will be, you know, persona non grata, you must leave the country. That's minimal. But I don't think you'd be treated well if you went to New York City or something and pulled out your Bible and started... Well, that happens all over. You find that stuff. You're not necessarily respected. You're pretty much looked at as a crazy person. But you're not arrested and you're not threatened with death. People kind of just ignore you if you do that on the streets in America. But what does it reveal when people respond with anger, hostility, violence to religious views that are different from their own? What does that reveal? Does it reveal anything? Fearful. <clears throat> Reveals fearfulness. Anything else? Lack of knowledge. If you were the conference president, and you picked which conference, pick which conference, whichever level you want, how would you recommend handling a church member who is not a church employee, notice the caveat, not a church employee, that is teaching ideas which challenge the current orthodoxy? As conference president, what would you recommend? There's somebody teaching, they're a member of the church, they're teaching something challenging the current orthodoxy, but they're not employed by the church and not paid by the church. And the reason I put that out, because there's a difference when you accept payment to represent an organization, you're employed to represent them, you have a responsibility to represent what the organization wants you to represent. So there's a, there's a, there's a responsibility there that's a little different. But as a member, the members ultimately elect the people who serve at the offices of the organization, and ultimately, uh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. It's not a republic election. No, we elect members who represent, who then elect people. We, 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 we elect the uh, executive councils and the constituency representatives and so forth. So, so the membership has a voice, is what my point is, rather than being employed by and going out to represent. So if you're a conference president, what would you recommend... We do to handle a divergent member voices. Yes. Any thoughts? I would say let them be. If they are from God, they will succeed. If they are not, they will just not make it. That's, that's brilliant. That comes right out of Acts, doesn't it? Yes, that's brilliant. Is that how you see it handled most of the time? No. What do you think? Is it more important to ensure that there's no controversy of ideas, no dispute, that the membership is in a state of tranquil peace? Or is it healthy to allow an open debate, discussion, exploration of divergent ideas, even if those upset some members in the church? Which, which, which would you, if you were the leader, prefer? Well, we don't want any controversy. We want everybody to come and just smile and everybody be happy. Or do we want some you know, not violence, to be sure, no violence, but in, in, in mature ways, some, some healthy disagreement. That's the only way truth expands. Well, I, I read this week out of a book called Counselors to Writers and Editors the following. Whenever the people of God are growing in grace, they will be constantly obtaining a clearer understanding of his word. 
They will discern new light and beauty in its sacred truths. This has been true in the history of the church in all ages, and thus it will continue to the end. But as real spiritual life declines, it has ever been the tendency to cease to advance in the knowledge of truth. Men rest satisfied with the light already received from God's word and discourage any further investigation of the scriptures. They become conservative and seek to avoid discussion. The fact that there's no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. There is reason to fear that they may not be clearly discriminating between truth and error. What would be reason to fear here? The fact that there's no controversy. That's reason to fear. When no new questions are started by the investigation of Scripture, when no difference of opinion arises which set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. I have been shown... Now, some people, when that language is used, give a little more credit to what follows than, than I have an opinion. But um, this person's claiming some, some special insight, having been shown. I have been shown that many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidences of their faith. They have no just appreciation of the work for the present time. When the time of trial shall come, there are men now preaching to others who will find upon examination the positions they hold, examining the positions they hold, that there are many things for which they can give no satisfactory reason. And there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe, but until a controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain belief, they will be surprised to see how confused are the, their ideas of what they have accepted as truth. Certain it is that there has been among us a departure from the living God and a turning to men, putting human wisdom in place of divine. Thoughts about that? What did you hear? Controversy and, 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 and healthy discussion and even debate, is, is, is that good or is that bad? Notice what it said at the end. If we don't have this, we end up putting human wisdom. What do you think is the core of human wisdom? Selfishness. Selfishness, pride, okay. Would it be the method that humans use to determine right and wrong? And what methods do the, is the human method for determining right and wrong? Not the divine method. Popularity consensus. Consensus. That's level three. Okay, level three is the consensus of the peer group. Level three maturity. Uh, reward and punishment, level one. Okay. The best deal. Level two. Rules imposed. Level four. So all the, all the first four levels of which are immaturity are the, are the levels and methods that humans use. And not reliable, not design law stuff. It's imposed, imperial, arbitrary, subject to change, not constant, so therefore not constant, not reliable. And thus there moves afoot in the organized church to silence controversy, voices that challenge the orthodox view. Why? Why would we do that? Because we disagree with what we've thought about and found and discovered seems to conflict with what we've been told. And what's the tradition in the church? 
regarding church leadership. They're always right. Don't question them. They're always male. <laughs> They're always male. Chosen by God Himself. That's the tradition. To challenge that challenges the tradition, challenges certain power groups, and thus we need to put in compliance committees to ensure compliance, which is the human way of doing things. Yesterday, Dr. George Graves sent me an article which was written in the aftermath of the 1888 Minneapolis General Conference. If you know the history and what happened in 1880, this is a righteous by faith message come forward. This is uh, the Jones Wagner bringing forth. Ellen White sided with Jones Wagner against the church leadership who was taking a more imperial view of things. And this was written in 1890, and it's found in manuscript release 56 in the 1890. Do not anyone think that we have got all the truth we need that we have got the main, that we have got the main pillar of faith, and if we are right there, we have no need to trouble ourselves, that we may understand the truth for ourselves. One minister who has been in the work for years says, "Now, Sister White, we have got. Now, Sister White, have we got to understand our, for ourselves?" There are reasons that are from the Bible in regard to the points of our faith. Why can't we take them as others have prepared them? And then we need not take that time and, and we go ahead and proclaim it. I'm going to pause here because it's kind of awkward the way it's written. But what, what it's saying is a minister is asking her and saying, Hey, someone else has gone and studied and they've made these Bible lessons that give us the Bible references for the points of doctrine. Why can't we just go out with these Bible lessons that show the point of doctrine with the reference text and teach other people these things? Why should we have to study it ourselves? Someone else prepared the lesson for us. She goes on. We believe... Okay, no, this is, uh, again, under the quote. I'll start the quote back. This is the minister questioning her. Now, Sister White, we have we got to understand ourselves? There are reasons that are from the Bible in regard to the points of our faith. Why can't we take them as others have prepared them? And then we need not take that time, and we proclaim it. We believe these to be men of God. Don't you believe that... That he was, and it mentions a certain person's name that's not included here. Don't you believe that he was inspired of God? End quote. End question from the pastor. Her answer. No, I do not. I do not believe any such thing. (laughs) I believe that God has given him a work to do. And if there is a man or a woman who is not consecrated or devoted to God every hour, I do not care who they are. The enemy will slip in some self, weave it right in, his peculiar traits, his peculiar ideas. And first thing, he is molding others, and he is putting his fashion upon those who are around him. It is dangerous business to exalt man or to lean upon man or make flesh our arm. Pause. You know, this is why I say in here over and over and over again that I am not here to tell anyone what to think. I'm here to challenge people to think for themselves, to weigh the evidence for themselves, to come to their own cl- conclusion that you have your own individuality, your own mind, your own capacity to reason and think. It's not up for me to do your thinking for you. You only grow and expand in your capa- capacities and abilities as you exercise those abilities. Going on with this quote. Now, here you are in this school. Brother Wagner may present truth before you. You may say that the matter has been presented in truth, uh, that the matter presented is truth, But then what will you do? You must go to the scripture for yourselves. You must search them with humble hearts. If you are just full of prejudice and your own preconceived opinions, and if you entertain the idea that there is nothing for you to know, 
and that you know all that is worth knowing, you will not get any benefit here. But if you come like children, you want to learn all there is for you. If the God from heaven has sent anything for me, I want it. The Lord of heaven has led the mind of of man to make a speciality of studying the scripture, and then those scriptures are presented. He has given me reasoning powers. I can see the evidence just as well as he can see it. I can find the evidence as he finds it. I can go out and speak the truth because I know it is truth, and I do know that it is the truth, and therefore I can present it not as the product of someone else's mind. Isn't this brilliant? Okay, one one more paragraph. And this this actually, yeah, one more. uh, Actually, two more paragraphs. Cannot you question and investigate with one another? Indeed, you can. But the great trouble is that self is so large in us all that just as soon as we begin to investigate, we will do it in such an unchristian manner. It has been done here in Battle Creek. It was done in Minneapolis. It has been done in many other places. God is not in any such work as that at all. It is the devil that is in such work as that. What work is that is she talking about? Where we have discussion in an unchristian-like manner. Now, what's an unchristian-like manner? And I thought about this. I really spent some time, obviously, arguing and calling names and being ugly. That's easy to see. The hard one to see is when it when 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 unchristian stuff masquerades as righteousness. That's the harder the 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 angel of light, the you know the devil masquerading. That's the harder to see. And I really thought about this, studying different views with different people, and I've discovered that when you discuss different views with somebody on equal footing, that both of you come as equals. It's much more likely to go in a Christian manner. I'm willing to listen in here. You're willing to listen to here. You're contemplating. You're open. But when the, when the platform is one of a hierarchical structure, that you're a lay person speaking with a person who comes from the ruling body, with the, like the Council of Trent, okay, or a conference president, or a conference committee, or a pastor, or somebody which inherently is built in this construct that when you begin the dialogue, they're in a position of authority over you. Then the discussion is often not in a Christian manner. Because what you say is not heard with honesty and openness and contemplative thought. That person isn't open to be taught by the person who hasn't gone to seminary. You might not bring any truth that this person can... And this person instead is there to correct you. This person is there to tell you where you're wrong and to find fault and to hold up the orthodox view and to defend the system. So truth is obstructed. And so I think when you have these discussions, when, it's, when, it, when, the, when the structure has built in a hierarchy, it often leads to an unchristian-like discussion. I'm not saying always, but often. Last paragraph, and this one, this one, one to hold your socks for. But I speak of these men that they may know, that they may understand what is truth, and if they will not hear, if they will keep away, just as the ministers tell the congregations the stay away argument, and here it is, quote, don't go here. Now you want to hear everything. If he has got error, we want to know it. We want to understand it. 
those that are in prominent positions, and then we want to investigate for ourselves. We want to know that it is truth, and if it is truth, brethren, those children in the Sabbath school want it, and every soul of them needs it. This is what we want. So what is this saying? Hey, do we have, have any of you run into this thing where somebody in authority says, hey, he's teaching error. He's teaching heresy. Don't listen to him. Don't read this stuff. Don't, don't talk to him. Don't investigate. Just know that we in authority have decided that's not right. Don't, don't go, don't go listen. This says if you hear that argument, go listen. Go investigate. Go hear. You want to hear it. Just the opposite. Yes. What I find is that sometimes people will hear part of what they're listening to and compare it to their lens they already have developed inside and come away not having thoroughly listened or openly listened, but coming sort of with a judgment, with a, a lens that they look at through and they, they don't see the whole picture. They don't stay for the whole picture. They just see one little part and grab it and go, yeah, they're right. And that is the unchristian-like method. See, the Christian method is to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. Hey, you know what? This is what I heard. I'm not sure if you meant this or this. I'm hoping you meant this, but it sounded like you might have meant that. Can you clarify for me what you're really meaning here? Rather than taking something and immediately going out and twisting it to represent something so you can make an allegation and prove because you go in with the bias. This is what it, this is what the earlier quote said. If they will, uh, it, Yeah, the, the earlier paragraph, wherever it said their minds were. Yeah, he says, if you are just full of your own prejudice and your own preconceived opinions, and if you entertain the idea that there's nothing for you to know and that um, you know all there is worth knowing, you will not get any benefit here. You won't benefit in the discussions. Yeah. Two comments. One is that um, uh, this takes time. And... That's something that we often are not willing to do. The second thing is we like to concentrate and spend our times on the familiar. Because there's a reason. Both sides of the coin here, uh, what you just said, are connected by a similar process on two sides. Why do we like to spend time on the familiar? And why are we sometimes resistant to the unfamiliar? Why? How How does the familiar make us feel? Comfortable. How does the unfamiliar make us feel? If we are presented something that challenges our historic paradigm that we could be wrong on, what's our typical emotional response there? Excitement? Oh, I'm so excited. And I'm going to tell you that that's your preconceived ideas. Because in medicine and in science, there is a certain mindset. I won't say it's, it's, widely accepted, but there's a certain mindset where people who are wanting to look for truth are looking for a new idea, looking for a new way to understand, looking for a new explanation, looking for a new treatment, looking for a better explanation. And there's a real hunger to grow in the truth. And then when they see it, they, they get excited. But there's another mindset that we're comfortable with what we know. And when new ideas come, it's resisted and rejected in medicine. So you see the same thing. This is a human thing. It's resisted and rejected by insurance companies. Yeah. This goes back to Hebrews 5 and 6. Yes, the mature versus the immature. That's exactly right. So this idea, though, that if you hear somebody with the stay away argument, stay away from him, stay away from that group, stay away from that class, stay away from that website, don't listen. 
that according to this, you should go check it out for yourself and, and, and weigh the evidences and come to your own conclusion. You really need to know for yourself. But usually when somebody is saying that, they only know by hearsay themselves. Mm-hmm. They awesome. haven't gone and listened for themselves to find the truth. You know, again, we're assuming maturity here. Right. When a, child, a parent tells a child, don't try cigarettes, don't smoke cigarettes, don't, don't try alcohol, and, and the child says, hmm. I'm going to apply that principle. I'm going to go try cigarettes. I'm going to try alcohol. Okay, now you've kind of you've kind of blurred issues here. No, no, you've blurred issues because you've gone from actually you didn't say um, don't understand the reasons for why cigarette smoking's harmful. Right. You said don't actually try them. Now, if they, if they said, you know what? Um, I'm going to go actually talk to a professor, a doctor, somebody can give me some evidence as the pros and cons of cigarette smoking. That actually would be a thing to do when they said don't even study about cigarettes. But that, but you went straight for the experience without first understanding the implications. But again, with mature and <laughs> right. a mature a mature child or adolescent would would do that. They say, well, why shouldn't I try cigarettes? And ask for some reasoning. Right, and that investigate for themselves. Right, the immature. Uh, oh, they even say, okay, submit to the, to the parent, or they say, hmm, that interests me. Right, so, so the immature parent who gives their child rules, well, the Bible says you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z. You shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't do this, and that's the rule. Right. But there's no other actual reason for it other than the rule. Then when the child grows up and they leave home, often they will then try some of these things. Right. Because there's no reason. They've never investigated. Well, why did my parents say, what's the purpose of this? Yeah, so I see the potential there. So, the stay away argument, though, some of you have had this happen in this community. And I would say, hey, get this quote out of the notes. And next time somebody in the community says, oh, don't listen to that group. Don't go listen to that. Yeah, pull this quote out and say, hey, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. And then challenge them to check us out. Okay, does this mean, though, because we are supposed to check out stuff, think for ourselves, look at the evidence, that we set no standards, that we don't draw lines anywhere, that we let any idea be presented in our churches and engage in controversial discussion over any topic. Does it mean that? Well, from the same author that just said, if you hear the, you should go check it out and think for yourself, there should be some controversy, all this stuff. This is the same author out of Confrontation, page 91. We are not to attend their circles, neither are our ministers to engage in controversy with the spiritualists. They are that special class, they are of that special class whom we should not invite into our houses or bid them Godspeed. We have to compare their, we have to compare their teachings with what is revealed in God's will. We are not to engage in an investigation of spiritualism. God has investigated this for us and told us definitely that a class would arise in the last days who would deny Christ and uh, and who has uh, who would deny Christ. The character of spiritualists is so plainly described that we need not be deceived by them. If we obey the divine injunction, we shall have no sympathy with spiritualists, however smooth and fair their words may be. What do you think? Where's the line? What's the balance? Is there a principle here, or is this a rule? It applies to spiritualists, we can't, and it's just spiritualists, because she hasn't said it to any other group, or is there a principle that this particular paragraph is describing, and what's the principle that you can then apply broadly? Well, if I've gone through something myself, and I've reached a conclusion, and I see the fallacy of somebody else's argument to go down that same path, 
don't I have a responsibility to say something to keep them from going down that same path? And what's that, how, does that, how does what you're saying apply to engaging or not engaging in controversial discussion with spiritualists and those who pra- uh, practice spiritualism? So as you think about that, we're trying to understand the principle. She just said a moment ago, if somebody's teaching some controversy, we should investigate it. We should have dialogue. We should have controversial discussion. Now she's saying we shouldn't even engage in controversial discussion with the spiritualists. Are these contradictions? Is she contradicting herself? Okay, so as I've considered some of those controversies, I've been through it myself. Okay, I've been, let's say, disfellowshipped as the ultimate consequence. And I see somebody else following that same line of thought by the issues they're considering. Don't go there. This is where you're going to end up. Trust me, I've been there. I'm still not connecting to that. I'm just, no. uh, I'm just not connecting to that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just not seeing the connection. And what I hear is that this, what uh, James is applying, this thought is the idea that you have certain thoughts in common with your own brethren or people who claim to be your own brethren. Yeah. Spiritualists do not claim to be your own brethren. They are their own set, if you will. Well, they might. They claim to be human. They claim to be looking for enlightenment. They claim to be looking for a higher spiritual plane. They claim that uh, we're all brothers of the home, same human race. They claim a common foundation. They're, they're, and they claim they have some enlight and enlightenment that we don't yet have, and they want to share it with us. Just believe me. Don't think for yourself. I know what it is. Just, just follow along with what I say. So let me ask you this, because we're looking for the underlying principle here. Why is it that in some areas we should engage in the controversy, but here's one place where we shouldn't, and what's the principle? How do you know when you should or shouldn't? How about this? Somebody comes along today and suggests that we can achieve greater spiritual enlightenment and a close relationship with God if we put LSD in our communion wafers. That, that will enhance our communion experience, and we should start putting LSD in the wafers at church. What would you say to that? Should we have a should we have a deep investigation of that and, and a very controversial discussion? Or is that one... Like, we don't even need to debate that. Why, why don't we need to debate that? Why? Ah, okay. So when something is so obvious, when the weight of evidence that's in violation of design laws, in this case, the laws of health, okay, and you understand those design laws, you don't have to waste time investigating it. And in fact, if you do bring it up for open discussion and dialogue, those who are more immature, who don't understand yet the neurobiology and the health basis for these things, they might be confused if somebody gives a personal testimony of how they took LSD in their communion. And during that time, they had a vision from God and they had a transcendental experience. And, and now they love people more than they've ever loved before. And they, and they could be confused by that, right? So we don't have to waste any time when it's so clearly destructive and out of harmony with reality as God designed it. And spiritualism, when you understand reality, is about communing with supposedly disembodied spirits, which are not real in the sense of human disembodied spirits. They don't exist. They're contrary to what's been revealed in God's Word. They're inconsistent with actual what we understand about science now and, and the human uh, physiology and human being. And so it only means that just like with the LSD, people may have experiences along these lines, but they're deceptive and destructive experiences, inconsistent with reality. So we don't have to have that discussion or debate. 
when the evidence is already understood and revealed. Um, does this mean that we don't deal with anyone, though? Remember the quote, um, the character spiritualist is so disciplined, we don't even have sympathy with them, don't bid them Godspeed and so forth. Does that actually mean that we don't interact with the spiritualist or the person who is this? So if a missionary is in Haiti, and you know they packed spiritism down there, and you're wanting to witness to these people growing up in a pagan culture in which spiritism and spiritualism are practiced and, and believed, don't we do have to engage in that context with those people, right? Sure we do. So this isn't saying we don't witness to people caught up in that. It's saying that within the body that you don't open yourself up to be persuaded to arguments that you know are just completely false and you don't allow that into your group that is already freed from that kind of thinking. But it doesn't mean you go out and it doesn't mean you don't go out and try and free others from that. So how is it then we deal in the community, in the body, with people who have different views than us? What principles would you like to, to see brought to bear? What's a healthy approach? Yes. Use of your time in a profitable way. So making a profit? No. <laughs> Use of your time. In other words, if, if you're so busy worrying about this controversy or that controversy, you're, you're spinning with your wheels in unprofitable areas. You need to concentrate your energies in learning truth, God's word, understanding how he practiced in times past, and not spending your time on something that is... Okay, so don't get caught up in... And Paul talks about this, I think, to Timothy, about genealogies and certain things. Don't get caught up in those controversies that, that really just kind of spin and suck your energy up and divert you off of a, of a grander, larger, more healthy mission. So certainly, let's not do that. So how do we then deal with the person who is caught up in some of these, shall we say, um, views? Oh, well, it's just this, a view that's different than ours. We're not even going to judge it right or wrong. It's just different. We haven't come to understand it yet. I like Romans 14. We present truth and love and leave other people free. And then we, we want to be like the Bereans. If somebody has a different view, I want to hear it. I want to understand. I want to process it through the integrative evidence-based approach. Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it consistent with God's design laws, how he's built reality to work? Is it consistent with how real-life experience works? Are all three harmonizing in what's being presented? A lot of distortion and the most devastating lies are not the lies that violate all three of these. It's usually that violates one of these or two of these. So they may be, you may find a Bible passage that says a certain thing, but it's not in harmony with design law or in harmony with how reality works. But people, there's lots of stuff taught in Christianity that has a Bible verse that seems to support it. Or in the spiritualism side, that's all experience-based. They have these experiences, these out-of-body experiences, but it's inconsistent with design law and it's inconsistent with Scripture. And so the most powerful deceptions are those that have one of the three threads, but not all three. And so if you anchor your investigation to see how it works in all three threads, you can have great discernment to differentiate truth from error. Hayden Piper, an online listener, sent this quote in this week from the book Desire of Ages, page 509. Today in the religious world, there are multitudes who, as they believe, are working for the establishment of the kingdom of Christ as an earthly and temporal dominion. 
They desire to make our Lord the ruler of the kingdoms of this world, the ruler in its courts and camps, its legislative halls, its palaces and marketplaces. They expect him to rule through legal enactments enforced by human authorities. Since Christ is not now here in person, they themselves will undertake to act in his stead, to execute the laws of his kingdom. The establishment of such a kingdom is what the Jews desired in the days of Christ. They would have received Jesus had he been willing to establish a temporal dominion to enforce what they regarded as the laws of God and to make them the expositors of his will and the agents of his authority. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you think this method described here that many Christians in the world today want to use is a method we should use? Let's get a hold of the courts. Let's get a hold of the right legislators. Let's get a hold of the right senators, the right presidents, the right justices on the Supreme Court. Should we seek to legislate our beliefs and enforce them by law? Is this a Christian thing to do? Do you understand this is what Sharia law is? You ever heard of Sharia law? This is what Islam wants to do. They want to take a hold of the social government or the the government, and they want to enforce their religious laws by threats of punishment, including execution, if you don't obey their laws. Should we do that? It's also what some, some, notice I'm some, Christians want to do in regard to abortion law. Force everyone to abide by their view and enforce it through the courts and the legislation. How is Christ supposed to rule? Think that through. Pause right there. How is Christ supposed to rule? What is his method? Or if Christ were ruling, where and how does he rule? Does he rule through legislative enactments? Threats of punishment, enforcement, police state. Is that how he rules? He rules in our hearts and our minds. Yes, he rules in the hearts and minds. That's where he wants to rule. He wants to reign enthroned in the hearts and minds of people. And when he rules enthroned in hearts and minds of people, what happens there? Their hearts and hearts are changed. Their hearts and minds change, and they begin functioning more coercively, more intolerance, more demands, more abuse of others, more 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 pressure to conform other people to you, or do they become more loving, more compassionate, more gracious, more present the truth in love, lead people free? If you want some evidence for this, human, not just Jesus. Well, Jesus was God, so we can't really, we could never. Let's look at some non-Jesus examples. Moses, prior to his ultimate conversion experience where Moses talked to God at the bush and got ready for ministry. Prior to that, at age 40, what, what did Moses do of any note? He murdered somebody. You're, he's going to use power force to, to make, you're, you're abusing my people. I don't like it. Here's how I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to kill you. Now, after all of this, 40 years later, God comes down and says, hey, I'm going to wipe the people of Israel out. And I'm going to start over with you and your kids. And Moses said, all right, they are a rebellious group. They deserve it. Wipe them out. Or did Moses say, no, far be it from you. No, I, I, I take my life out of the book, the eternal book, eternal life. I'm, I don't want it. If, if you're going to do that, Lord, I don't want to see that. Something changed in Moses. How about Paul? 
Damascus, prior to Damascus Road, what method was he using for his converts? He was arrest, coercion, power of the state, imprisonments, beatings, this very thing. But after his conversion, we present the truth in love. We lead people free. I would gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. There is no coercive pressure brought to bear. Something changed. The methods of God are not the methods of human states. And even if you have the right cause, this is one of the deceptions of Satan. The right cause. Let's say that we understand and uh, that baptism by the Bible, uh, the, 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 the um, ceremonial baptism of the Bible is to be conducted uh, in a certain way. And we'll say immersion. And we believe that's biblical. We cross from God's kingdom into Satan's kingdom if we get a hold of legislation and we threaten to punish people who won't get baptized by immersion. We'll imprison them, we'll take their property, we'll fine them, uh, we'll execute them. Uh, They must be baptized by immersion or else. Even though the baptism is the right method uh, of the symbolic representation, the coercive pressure is not of God's kingdom. We're not on his side anymore. Does everybody get that? That's where the dark ages came from. That's where the dark ages. We're going to burn them at the stake and give them last rites, and then we can send their soul unto heaven. This is this kind of weird thinking. For their benefit. You cannot achieve God's goals by using Satan's methods. You can't do it. It's not possible because of how design law works. And before Jesus washed his disciples' feet, we read where he took off his outer garments and washed the disciples' feet. But the verse just before that says that Jesus, knowing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, took off his outer garment and washed his disciples' feet. And so how did he use power? By serving others. Even those all twelve were going to desert him or betray him or deny him that very same day, he still knelt down and washed all their feet with all his his power. So let me just clarify, because people can, as you said earlier, can hear something you say and think you said something else. Uh, Did I just say that that we should go out and perform more abortions? No. No. I didn't say that. Some people might go, that's what I was... I wasn't arguing pro one way. Method of achieving a goal. If you are in the pro-life camp, the godly method of doing that is converting people to God's cause such that he rules in their hearts and then they live in harmony with his designs. You cannot coerce people to have a godly heart. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. Let's talk about the lawyer who was brought in by the uh, church leaders to uh, to make a case and prosecute Paul before Felix. It says he went on to make sp- three specific charges against Paul, that Paul was an agitator who constantly f- was fomenting unrest among the Jews with, uh, throughout the empire, that he was a ringleader of the Nazarenes, which implicated Christianity as a whole, as a kind of disruptive movement, and that he had attempted to defile the Jerusalem temple. Were any of these charges true? No. Oh, one of them was. He was a ringleader. He was a ringleader of the people who followed Jesus, wasn't he? A ringleader of the Nazarenes. He was. He was he was in the leadership of that group. That was a true statement. And you notice most most lies are best put forward if there's some element of truth included. Some element of truth. And so the truth here was Paul was a ringleader amongst the Nazarenes. 
You see, the best poison that to, to, to poison people isn't the one that has a skull and crossbones that says poison on the label. It's the one that says nutritious juice or something on the label. That's the one that's the, the most most destructive. So, so Paul was so so Paul was a ringleader, but was Paul an agitator who was fomenting unrest among the Jews? That's my question for you. Answer: Was Paul an agitator who was fomenting unrest among the Jews? Yes. Yes. He was, from the Jewish leadership's perspective. Right. From their perspective, he was undermining their social order. He was undermining their authority. Paul was upsetting their way of thinking and the esteem in which they were held by the people. But Paul was not inciting rebellion against Rome. Just the opposite. We should obey the laws of Rome. Pay unto Caesar, like Jesus said, the things that are Caesar's. He was not actually inciting rebellion against Rome. He was upsetting their orthodoxy within the Jewish system. So it was agitating to them. But he wasn't purposely agitating. But notice what the lawyer did. And this is what human law constructs always lend themselves to and what human lawyers are paid to do. They twist issues. They twist things. And so what did he do? He took a fact, Paul, as a ringleader of the Nazarenes, and the fact that Paul was agitating in certain Jewish circles, and where he went, there was agitation that stirred up because of the ideas he was putting forward. That's a fact. And he twisted that uh, into interpreting that it was because of this that the Jews were rebelling against Rome. That's not true. They were rebelling against Rome long before Paul, long before Jesus came along even. They were rebelling against Rome constantly. But they linked those, made a linkage where one didn't really exist in reality. Because they wanted the Romans, this is the scapegoat method. This is let's find someone to focus our attention on so the focus isn't on us. And so they took a couple of things that were factual. Paul's the leader of this group. That, and when he presents this stuff, some of the Jews get upset. And that then is the cause of all this rebellion against Rome, Felix. What do you think of the third allegation that Paul attempted to defile the Jewish temple? What do you think of that allegation? Was that true? No, it's actually false, and it was quite interesting, if you understand. Why did the Jews make this allegation? Why did they do it? Yes. You associate with Gentiles, and that's an anathema. You don't associate with Gentiles. Yes. Okay. He was associating with but he didn't defile. Even with their rules, he didn't defile. You know, um, the high priest would go and associate with Pilate and deal with these Roman governors and so forth, but they would still come back into the temple. You could interact with Gentiles and not defile the temple when you come back. Uh but why did it matter? Why did it matter to this Jewish leadership, this allegation? Was the temple important in their power base? Mm-hmm. Was the temple a tool used to control and influence the people? It was one of the allegations against Christ himself. So listen to this quote out of the book, Desire of Ages, page 161. Because I'm going to suggest to you, well, let me ask you, who were the actual defilers of the temple? Was it Paul? No. Was it Jesus? Who were the actual defilers who were defiling the temple? So this is out of Desire of Ages 161. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as Messiah and entering upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson to Israel and to the world. For eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God. Darkened and defiled by evil, the hearts of man no longer revealed the glory of the divine one. 
But by the incarnation of the Son of God, the purpose of heaven is fulfilled. God dwells in humanity, and through saving grace, the hearts of men become again his temple. This is very powerful stuff. This is moving us from symbolism and metaphor to reality of how God's kingdom actually works. God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. But the Jews had not understood the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. The courts of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the hearts from the defilement of sin, from earthly desire, selfish lusts, and evil habits that corrupt the soul. The Lord you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. This is quoting Malachi 3. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the Levites. Notice when Christ comes at the end of the 2300 days to cleanse the sanctuary, he is coming to cleanse the Levites. And who are the Levites? The priesthood of believers. He's coming to cleanse the hearts of the people. It's not a work done in a building somewhere in some corner of the universe. It's a work done in the hearts and minds. Can you go on with the quote? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defiles the temple of God, he shall, him God, shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. No man can of himself cast out the evil throng that have taken possession of the heart. Only Christ can cleanse the soul temple. But he will not force an entrance. He comes not to the heart as the temple of old, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. I will dwell with him and walk with him, and they shall be my people. I will subdue their iniquities, and thou wilt cast out their sins into the depths of the sea. His presence will cleanse and sanctify the soul so that it may be a holy temple unto the Lord. Why did the Jews allege Paul of defiling the temple? What did both Paul and Jesus threaten by their actions and their teachings? Expose their hearts. Yes, yes, to expose their hearts, that's right. And so Paul and Jesus were both trying to move them away from a symbolic, metaphorical, object lesson, rules-oriented approach to reality, to actual reality. And they didn't like it. They liked their symbolism. They liked their rules. Because in that symbolic world, they had all types of loopholes, and it didn't require them to actually have a change of heart. What about today? What about in your church and, or the Seventh-day Adventist church? Remember the Seventh-day Adventist church? Could there be people threatened in leadership today when we try to teach that the sanctuary is a metaphor for the hearts and minds of people's, of people where Christ wants to dwell and Christ wants to dwell the spirit, uh, cleanse the spirit temple and dwell there. That we are living stones built together into a house for the Lord. If we try and teach that, do some people get threatened? They prefer to stay metaphorical. There's a smoky little building where Jesus is, is burning incense to his father and opening books and applying blood to erase 
from records in heaven, deeds and, and sins. But if our founder taught what you just read, how did we come up with a doctrine so distorted? Because the, one of the purposes, the prime purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as I understand it, in the, in the history of the Reformation, the core mission of this church was to take the final step to complete the Reformation, which was to reject human imperial law and come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and all that in them is, which means we understand God is creator, and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built, and he sustains reality by the operations of his laws. And they include the physical laws, like the laws of health, the laws of physics, but all of his moral laws. And he, and he met us in our need and gave a codification of those moral laws, the Ten Commandments, as a diagnostic tool to reveal the sickness in us. But that's all it was. It wasn't the actual problem. You break the rule, you get in the legal. But we've interpreted that through the hu- human law model. These are the rules you have to obey. And if you don't, then justice requires imperialistic punishment. This is the human law. This is the beastly system. Coercive pressure. But if, if some people get, I've had talks with certain theologians, they go, we agree with you in regards to God's design laws on the law of gravity and laws of physics and laws of health. But his moral laws are imposed rules and they require punishment for breaking. Well, just think this through. If you're married and you commit adultery, which is breaking one of the ten, right? But your spouse never finds out. It's, it, they really never find out. Do you avoid Consequence to you? What happens inside of you if you're cheating on your spouse? Your conscience will be seared. You will be convicted with guilt. You will have increased fear. You will worry. You'll become a liar and a stever. You'll make up stories. You'll have to, to, to misrepresent truth when your spouse says, where are you? And you're off to meet your, your, you know, uh, other person. You will have to lie. Your whole, you're being, you can't avoid the corruption that comes. You're being damaged in that process. And you either repent which is having a change of the inner workings of the heart so that fear and selfishness are removed and truth and love are written in and you get a new heart and right spirit unless you go down a different path and you've been living differently and you're being transformed by the inner presence of Jesus living in your heart or you continue down the self-justification distortion pathway which only hardens your heart and takes you further and further away from how God built reality to work. And thus the wages of sin is death and sin when full grown brings forth death and the one who sows to the carnal nature from that nature will reap destruction this is all design law stuff and this is how reality works and god has been working through time and through history to bring us back and this church was called to represent that so why are we stuck is because we've never thrown that law model off and instead we have a series of doctrines that we teach through the same false law god has made up a rule that one of those rules is the seventh day sabbath and it's a test of obedience. There's no reason for it except that God said do it. And if you're going to be loyal to him, you'll obey that rule. But if you don't obey that rule, then God will keep me- measure. Your TV didn't get turned off until three and a half seconds after the Sabbath started in your time zone. That went in a book. If you don't ask forgiveness for that, God will have to punish you as long as you deserve. Now, three and a half seconds only is a millisecond of fire in the, in the pain. So it'll be very short for you, but you're still going to die for alternative. But if you watch the whole football game, well, that's three minutes of pain and suffering before he kills you. This is how there are many people in the Adventist church who think this way. It's corrosive. It's wrong. It undermines trust. It incites fear. It doesn't incite love. It doesn't bring loyalty. And then it results in leadership in the organization becoming authoritarian and wanting to enforce its rules and become thought police. So we've been given a beautiful message. Ellen White had this message. 
but she went up in 18, right after 1888. She Look at the, what she wrote after 1888. Steps to Christ, Thoughts to Mount of Blessing, step, um, Desire of Ages, Christ Object Lessons. And you read those books, they're filled with what I'm telling you. It's just filled with it. But the leadership was stuck in the imperial model. They were stuck in the authoritarian model. Not only that, prior to 1888, the Adventist church sent out evangelisms, and they had posters that they used because they didn't have slide projectors and stuff. They didn't have PowerPoint. So these posters... And these posters had, all through the poster, all these little Bible images. You had the Garden of Eden in one corner. You had, you know, the cross. And you had all these different Bible stories, this parting of the Red Sea. But front and center, bigger than anything else, was the Ten Commandments. Up until 1888. After 1888, Ellen White commissioned that that poster be redrawn. And on the new poster, you had all these little stories of the Bible there. But front and center is the cross. And the law, you have to have a magnifying glass way in the back on Sinai. You have to have a magnifying glass to see the law. It's so small. It's there because the law was given its purpose, but it's not the thing. And she understood that the written law is not the thing. It's the cross of Christ that's the thing. And it was a message of healing and love and transformation. And so what did leadership do in 1890 after about a year and a half of back and forth with Ellen White and her read what she wrote to them over and over again, what did they do? Exactly. Well, leadership of our church was established in Battle Creek. This is North America. Where in that time and culture could we get her as far away from us as possible? Australia. They shipped her to Australia. And if you look at a map, it's exactly the opposite side of the world. You've took a, took a, it's exactly, you can't get farther away on planet Earth than Australia. Okay? And they shipped her to Australia. And down there, she did some wonderful things. She worked for the Lord. She established the Avondale and the food industry. And, and she wrote those wonderful books that I told you about. But leadership rejected this message. And we have been stuck for a 100 years, more than a 100 years now, in an imperialistic, false understanding of the right doctrines, i.e. the right baptism, right day of worship. But then we present them through the wrong law model, which ultimately represent the wrong God and the wrong consequences, which incite fear and undermine trust. And, we, and then we teach all these theories that functionally work to hide us and protect us from God rather than bringing us into unity with God. Covered by the righteousness so when the Father looks at me, he won't see my wickedness. Washed in the blood so all my records of deeds will be washed away. I have an intercessor standing between me and the Father pleading my blood, my blood, Father. Notice all these doctrines are designed functionally to hide and protect me from God because I don't trust him. Because we're under the wrong law model. And on the wrong model, justice requires that the ruling authority punish lawbreakers. And we have to have somebody take that punishment and do something to him to change him so he won't do it, pay the penalty and all this kind of stuff. But if we get back to the reality of God as our creator and sin actually deforms and, and injures us, then God has been working through Christ to fix what's broken with us. And then we pray like David in Psalms 51, Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. I want you to find what's broken because I know when you find it and I open my heart and let you in, that you're going to fix everything broken in me and restore in me. Write your law in my heart and mind. That's the gospel message that our church was to take to the world. And this is why there's been a delay because God is still waiting for a people today to come back to the truth of his nature, his character, his methods, his design laws, and take a message to the world where we will begin worshiping in the creator and reject this dictator view of God with his imperial law. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are so amazing, beautiful, who you created the entire universe to operate in harmony with yourself, and and love only operates in the atmosphere of freedom. And thus, when rebellion originated, you did not use coercive power to force your way, but you left your intelligent beings free, even though it cost you such pain and suffering. 
We ask that your spirit of truth and love will be poured out, enlightening our minds, transforming our hearts, and preparing us, and making us effective in communicating this message, and preparing hearts and minds to be receptive, so that the world will be lighted, and you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.